Well, I invite you to open your scriptures to Mark chapter 7. If you were listening to the lyrics in the hymns this morning, uh, what might have stood down out a little bit to you is the mention of devils repeatedly. And we're going to be looking at a man this morning um, that had a very real experience after he was converted, Martin Luther, and would actually hear voices in the room and ended up on one occasion throwing his ink bottle at the voices in the corner. And so this is a very real experience of saints uh, that have uh, gone before us. And um, before we look at Mark chapter 7, just a a household announcement, and that is that Linda Denai's daughter Shauna has gone to be with the Lord after a series of suffering. Um, And so we want to pray for the family as they work through this. So let's pray, and then I'll invite you to stand after we pray to read God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered together in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to worship you. And we praise you as sovereign Lord, the giver of life, the creator of all things, And Lord, we ask that you would still our hearts this morning as we consider your word and your sovereignty in history to some of the very things we have already enjoyed this morning. Lord, we lift up our sister Linda Denai and her family that you would comfort them through the death of Shauna, that you would be with Shauna's husband and family, that you would Come alongside of them and show to them very clearly that your grace is sufficient in time of need. So we entrust Linda and her family into your hands for your keeping. Continue to guide, continue to cause them to lean not on their own understanding, but to trust you in all their ways, even when life doesn't seem to make sense. Or be with us this morning in this gathering. Our desire is that you are lifted up and glorified. That your word is believed to the point of us obeying it completely. And we ask for your help in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This month, as Pastor Matt already said, marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, If you go back 500 years, it's the year 1517. And that, on what is said, October 31st, is when Luther took a mallet and nailed a series of propositions on the castle door, the castle church door. And that's exactly what they were. They were uh, propositions to debate about and where he disagreed with the organized popular church of that day. And several features that we have already enjoyed this morning or will enjoy this morning, are are a result of being brought back out of about 300, 400 centuries of spiritual deadness. Uh, For instance, the clear gospel message. Luther said the church's true treasure is the gospel. Another thing is that the preaching returned to the center of the church's gathering rather than the mass being central. 
Surprisingly, another one is congregational singing. Nichols writes, congregations didn't sing in the centuries leading up to the Reformation. In fact, John Huss, one of the pre-Reformation reformers, was condemned as a heretic for, among other things, having his congregation sing. Luther and the other reformers restored congregational singing to the church. We will observe the Lord's Supper rather than a mass. We do not teach that this becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and is thereby a saving grace. But it is more of a memorial in it. There is grace to be found as we look back and remember Christ's death and forward to his return. And then finally, the belief that scripture, the Bible, is God's authoritative word. And so for the next five Sundays, this one, there's five Sundays in October, which helps us this year move the five solas, uh, Latin term meaning alone. Uh, typically, theologians mention five solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. And this morning our focus is going to be on sola scriptura. And what did they mean by that as they brought this truth back out of a church that looked to other things for their authority? So I'm going to ask you to stand as I read Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 1 down through 13. And we're going to realize uh, that what Luther confronted well, was nothing new. Jesus actually confronted this when he walked the earth. So this is not peculiar to the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he, Jesus, said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. You may be seated. Very interesting response from Jesus to the Pharisees and the scribes, how it is possible, and we have seen this, uh, to make void the word of God to maintain our traditions. We live in a world saturated with truth claims. What I mean by that is turn on the news, watch sports, 
And everybody is telling you what you should believe and shouldn't believe, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, how you should think, how you shouldn't think. And how do we sift through all these claims? I mean, whether it's Oprah or the NFL or a leader in a church, how do you sift through all the claims of people telling you what to believe? Well, some appeal to reason and logic. Some appeal to pleasure. Some appeal to intuitive or subjective sense. Some simply obey the rulers over them. But how are we supposed to think about morality? About the origin of the universe? About life after death? Is there a supreme final authority? So, are parents always right? There's my most dangerous question this morning. Are grown-ups always right? No, so that can't be a final supreme authority. What about government leaders? What about the leaders of the free world? Are they always right? What about church leaders? Pastors of evangelical churches? Pastors of Bible-believing, gospel-centered, evangelical churches. Are they always right? Okay, so we've already just sort of dismantled what people commonly look to as sort of a final guide or a final authority. And although there may be some truth in each of these sources, none of them can function as the ultimate standard of knowledge. Therefore, what we profess is this. And this is what God's people have universally affirmed, that there is only one thing that can legitimately function as the supreme standard, and that is God's word, right? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. But there's another crucial question that follows on the tail of that one, and it's this. So you, so you, can, you, can, you can claim Sola Scriptura, but where do you go to find that truth. Where is that truth found? How do we get, how do we, or where do we go to get God's word? And, and that question right there sort of pulls the curtain back on one of the primary debates of what then started the Protestant Reformation. Where do we go to get God's word? Where is that authority Found and, and the answer, yes, is the scriptures. But even back then, the Roman Catholic Church would have would have agreed with you that you go to the Bible for the final authority. But Rome claimed a trifold authority structure, which included scripture, tradition on the same level, oftentimes as as scripture and what is called magisterium, and that is the office of the church. This, in its in its highest manifestation, uh, was was linked directly to the Pope, seeing himself as sort of a successor of Saint Peter. When the Pope spoke ex cathedra, that is out of office, then his words had the same authority. As God's words in Scripture, because they were God's words. This is what the church was thinking. So if you were to say, yes, sola scriptura, but then you also invite into that conversation tradition 
and magisterium, church office, can you see the need for reformation? Because what had happened then is that people were departing from God's words and simply only listening to the church offices. Stephen Nichols wrote in his book, The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World. He writes, quote, historians like dates. And one of the dates that historians like best is October 31st, 1517. On that day, one monk with a mallet in hand nailed a document to the church door in Wittenberg. It contained a list of 95 theses for a debate. The immediate concern was an indulgence sale to finance St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo didn't come cheap. Martin Luther, the mallet-wielding monk, could keep silent no longer, but he got much more than a debate. He and his list of 95 theses triggered a reformation that would sweep across his native German lands, across Europe, and eventually across the entire world. The world would never be the same. Luther's act gave birth to the Protestant church, now nearly 600 million members strong. Luther's act also brought the world out of the medieval times into the modern age. Little wonder historians like the date of October 31st, 1517. Luther had pried open the lock that the Roman Catholic Church had on worship, on the sacraments, on religious life, and above all, on the gospel. And listen to what he says next. He pointed the church back. Right? The Reformation isn't some sort of new idea or new theology, but he pointed the church back to its sure foundation of God's word and the gospel. And that's why we're going to take five Sundays to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I want to, I want to highlight one, one danger. Sometimes when I talk to people outside of our church or when I read articles, journal articles, there are times when it seems the reformers are lifted higher than Christ. And this isn't just a, a one-time experience that I've had in talking with people, but all of a sudden John Huss and Martin Luther and John Calvin and all these other personalities seem to be lifted up as though more important than Christ himself. And I think at the beginning of the series, we need to remember the words of John the Baptist, where he said he must, what? Christ must increase and think about the personality of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the voice coming out of the wilderness after, after hundreds of years of no new revelation. And he says, and I must decrease. And God answered that prayer by allowing John the Baptist to be imprisoned and then beheaded. So we need to remember who the Lord is as we're going to be treating these. And Matt and I will probably be treating our, the different solas differently uh, this morning. There's going to be a lot more history and biography, not to lessen the exposition of scriptures, but I think there's something compelling about understanding the historical context out of which this reformation sprung. But in all of this, Jesus Christ must increase all of his servants, John the Baptist, all the other reformers, us, must decrease. So let's answer this question first. Why was Reformation even needed? Or what's the big deal? 
right? All, all these articles and all this treatment. Uh, here's a quick survey of the religious and cultural landscape of the day. And you're going to be able to find parallels in our day and age. First of all, moral corruption inside the church. In the 1400s, okay, that's the 15th century, 1400s, because the first century, that was from like zero to what, 99. It's a little confusing. Didn't you struggle with that in history? Okay, so the 15th century should be the years 1500 and such. No. Okay, so we're talking about the 1400s. The popes began to buy and sell church offices and tax church members. It's not a bad idea if you're looking for income, right? Um, popes and emperors. So you have the church, if you would, and the state. They seized control of the organized church, reducing it to a political tool and a seat of power to exploit others. And that exploitation kept getting worse and worse. If you would, the church was held hostage and oppressed by unregenerate, greedy and power hungry men in the church and in the monarchy. There was an obvious need for reformation. Not just moral corruption, but superstition and idolatry existed within the church. They were not only sanctioned, but actively promoted by the church. Common people and clergy alike were encouraged to worship relics, not just to go visit them like a tour, but they were encouraged to worship the relics of saints, including splinters and nails from the cross and even pieces of bone and hair from the apostles. So these became objects of worship, sort of means of grace, rather than Christ's finished work on the cross alone. So when idolatry is sanctioned by the church and superstition is used as a tool to manipulate church people, there's an obvious need for reformation. A little more on relics. Relics offered more than just sentimental value. Church leaders taught and many common people believed that owning or even viewing these relics could provide, listen to this, relief from the penalties of sin. And could release them from years in purgatory. A little more on that in a moment. If relics are being presented as a means of deliverance and rescue, then it is obvious that reformation is needed. We talked about this briefly already, the selling of indulgences. This became the focal point for the discussion. This is what finally pushed Luther to confront the bully. And the selling of indulgences, the reason it caught his attention so severely is because it it combined many of the church's problems into one repulsive, disgusting practice. So what is an indulgence? It is a declaration by church authorities. Okay, magisterium, that those who say certain prayers or do certain deeds will have some or all of their punishment in purgatory canceled. So it's attractive, right? If you think you are heading quickly towards um, that kind of suffering, that purging, which is often done by pain and time. And if you could have that released. And if you actually believe the church officers over you, then basically whatever they say goes. So an indulgence is a declaration by church authorities that those who say or do certain things can have their penalties or their punishment canceled. Secondly, 
A little quick description on purgatory. It began with origin in the third century. Right. So purgatory had its origin in origin. Did you see? Did you see that? Just trying to keep you with me on a very what can become a dry historical lesson here. But origin didn't push this as a doctrine. Origin asked a good question. Origin in the third century said, and I want you to I want you to try to see how you would answer this. He asked, how can we be perfect in heaven if we're so sinful here? It's a good question. We heard a sermon last Sunday from Second Corinthians 521 on that exact point. Without any scriptural evidence, Origen speculated that maybe there was a place in between earth and heaven where somehow, where we haven't merited God's favor, right, by our own works. There's this like in-between place where we are purged of that remaining sin so that now we are finally purged. We can stand before a God who demands complete righteousness. As happened fairly regularly, what the early church speculated on, the medieval church turned into doctrine. And that is exactly what has happened. And they teach purgatory, a purging, was a place where your remaining sin was removed. Now, some of you, I mean, that just sounds silly because you have been under the clear teaching of the gospel for so many years. And, and it was the reformers who actually brought the clarity of the gospel back to center stage, if you would. And that's why you hear that and you're like, well, that's how could anybody believe that? They believed that because of sort of the climate, the religious climate of their day. You can read Dante's Purgatorio for a picture of that idea of purgatory expounded. And as I was working through this, it really does beg a question. And the question is this. Does the does the Roman Catholic Church still believe in purgatory today? And the answer is that even though many nominal Catholics sort of have done away with that thought or have set it aside, that the actual church is still on record as believing it. Matter of fact, on September 17th, 2002, Pope John Paul II stressed the need for all Roman Catholics to pray for the souls in purgatory. Vatican II's dogmatic constitution on the church asserts this sacred council accepts loyally the venerable faith of our ancestors in the living communion which exists between us and our brothers who are in the glory of heaven or who are yet being purified after their death. Well, like then, during those years, removing your sin by a life of good deeds and hard work proved extremely difficult. So they asked, is there some other way to get this done? Is there some other way to release this, this period of painful purging? So the church came up with an idea and they declared, the magisterium declared that some saints who have be, gone before, that we have declared, that have been declared saints, have stored up righteousness, which common folks who aren't saints, by the way, that just goes totally against the New Testament idea of who a saint is and who isn't. Um, but the church is saying there's this, this, this storehouse of righteousness from other people who did live well, who did merit God's favor. And you can actually tap into their righteousness. So in, in a sense, their righteousness, and some of you are going to see the, the, 
what we heard last Sunday uh, with, with today, um, their righteousness can be applied to your account because they have so much of it. And for a nominal fee, it, no, and it really was a nominal fee, you could procure for your family an indulgence which would transfer righteousness from the treasury of saints to your account or to a family member. And, and honestly, folks, who would not want to sort of help dear grandma out of purgatory? So this was an incredible, incredible opportunity for the church to make a lot of money. The most powerful indulgences, and these were rare, but they, they were talked about, was believed to purchase complete salvation. One of those that the church had talked about was because now they, they didn't just need money. They needed men to go on crusade. And if you went on crusade, there was talk that 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 act alone, that deed alone could procure your full salvation. So you have a bunch of really evil dudes going on crusade because they know they're evil and they're hoping that they're going to be able to obtain salvation by that one act. There's an obvious need for what? Reformation. And the church found out that they could make a lot of money. And one of the most successful and notorious peddlers of indulgence in Luther's day kind of put it in a pithy jingle as they sent him around from town to town. And he would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And all they heard was cha-ching, cha-ching, right? There was an obvious need for reformation. By the way, that is an outright, an outright lie. It is false teaching. It was propagated and made powerful by the magisterium in the church. I want to read three scriptures as we go back to Sola Scriptura. And this is what the early reformers were feeling as they read God's word. I want to read these, these three passages to show to us still how scandalous this teaching was and is. I just want you to listen. Write down, you can write down the references, but I just want you to listen to the words in light of that sort of historical snapshot. Galatians 2.16. Galatians, one of Luther's favorite books. He has a commentary uh, on, on Galatians. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, listen to this, no one will be justified. Paul goes on to say this in Galatians 3.11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. As Matt mentioned, as he opened up, it was in Romans 1 that, that Luther saw this. How, how is this grace of Jesus Christ, how, how is this cross work applied to me? The righteous shall live by faith. Listen to Romans three twenty seven to 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? Right? You, you could boast if you went on a crusade to merit your own salvation. You could boast if you worshipped a relic enough. Or owned one. 
You could boast if you bought indulgences for your entire family. But Paul's going to ask them, what becomes of our boasting? He's just walked through that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners alike. It doesn't matter what your race is, your educational background. You are sinful. Then what becomes of our boasting? The answer is his own question. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Wayne Grudem says, quote, as God's very words, the words of Scripture are more than simply true. They are truth itself. They are the final measure by which all supposed truth is to be gauged. And so the magisterium and even today popular religious personalities and leaders are judged by the scriptures. They do not bring their words up on the same level as God's word. Well, the influx of money simply meant that churches started springing up all over Europe. Of course, it was the raising of those funds that caught Luther's attention that was going to to fund St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, some, some Christians still travel to Europe and visit these buildings. And yet behind these buildings is is a false teaching that raised, it doesn't mean you can't visit them and admire good architecture, but you have to understand the historical context. That's what funded the, the building of these very impressive structures. And you had a remnant who were truly desirous of following God. They realized a reformation was needed, but they didn't know how it was going to start. Some of the early voices calling for theological reform, people like Peter Waldo, not where's Waldo, right? Peter Waldo. Uh, well, where's Waldo? He was about 300 years before Luther. And John Bloom wrote of Peter Waldo, more than 300 years before Martin Luther was born, an unlikely reformer suddenly appeared in the city of Lyon in southeast France. His protests against doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church were strong tremors foretelling the coming spiritual earthquake called the Reformation. Other voices, John Huss, John Wycliffe, and Savonarola. And then later, um, you have John Knox, Lady Jane Grey, John Bunyan, and Anne Bradstreet. You have men and women who sort of confront this big bully in the schoolyard called the organized church. And sure, there are remnants of truth throughout, but this, this big sort of leading popular church was now finally being confronted for its false teaching and false practice. The man most believers often think of first when they think of that confrontation is Martin Luther. We sang one of his hymns this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So quickly, who is this man that God used to spark the Protestant Reformation? Well, intertwining with, with Luther's life is another man some of you will be familiar with, and his name is Erasmus. He is a Dutch humanist. He enjoyed the titles of Catholic priest, teacher, prince of the humanists, and has been called the crowning glory of the Christian humanists. Now, interestingly, even though Erasmus, uh, when he was threatened to be excommunicated from the church, he professed his loyalty to the Roman Catholic Church and ended up half-heartedly fighting Luther the rest of his life behind sort of this kind of veil of humor but he really didn't go after him directly. 
But it was Erasmus, interestingly, who said ad fontem, which means to the font. Now, if you want to if you want to study something very interesting connected to this, it is called the flight of the scholars, where where the Muslims came down and basically conquered Constantinople and moved all the scholars west. And with them, they brought the texts and some copies of the scripture. And so it settled in. So when Erasmus said, ad fontem, back to the text, that was possible now because this wasn't sort of this protected little enclave up in Constantinople. Matter of fact, it was uh, Erasmus who put forward one of the first in 1516, 501 years ago, uh, one of the first Greek New Testaments and later editions would be used by Luther to translate the Bible into German. So Erasmus is not part of the Reformation, even though his cry was to the font. Luther said this, Luther said this of Erasmus, that he was like Moses who could lead God's people to the border of the promised land, but he could not go in himself. And with some of Erasmus's theology, Luther said this. Luther told Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. Rather than ad fontem, gathering his thoughts and his understanding of who God is from the scripture. Luther was born in Germany on November 10th, 1483. From his young life, he was very religious, spent most of his early life in mortal fear of the devil and hell. And when he was 22, he found himself caught in a thunderstorm. Lightning hit close by to him. He fell to his knees and he cried out. If he would survive, he sort of made this vow. Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. And when he didn't die in a thunderstorm, he kept his word and he entered an August, Augustinian monastery in Wittenberg, Germany. And he became what they call a monk's monk. He did Everything by the letter. He attended mass. He venerated saints and relics. He made a pilgrimage to Rome where he climbed the steps up to Pilate's judgment seat, kissing every step for good measure. And what he found is this. None of those prescriptions worked. He still understood himself as being unrighteous and under the judgment of God. Luther had discovered that sin cannot be defeated by becoming a monk or living according to a set of rules. He said this, entering the monastery merely turned me from a sinful law student into a sinful religious person. He understood we are not merely sinners because we sin. We are sinners at the very root of our being. Sin isn't just a matter of what we do. It's a matter of who we are. So Luther's priest encouraged him to take a promotion where he began teaching the scriptures. And this is sort of where God now is going to, going, going to get attention of Luther's heart. So he started systematically working through the Psalms. He did them beginning in Psalm 1. When he reached Psalm 22, listen to what he came upon. He was tr very troubled by this statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Luther understood that this was a messianic psalm and that was speaking about Christ. But what he couldn't figure out is that why Christ was offering the cry that only a sinner should cry. Why have you forsaken me? That moved him into a vigorous study of the book of Romans and Galatians 
And he was struck by this truth as he's as he's using scripture to interpret scripture. He's using Galatians and Romans to interpret Psalm 22. He was struck with this conclusion. It must be that God made him Christ who was without sin to be sin for him. That realization of God sending Christ to be his substitute shook Luther. The anguished, guilt-ridden young monk now had, for the first time in his life, a profound sense of God's forgiveness as he trusted in Christ alone, by faith alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, because he's now seeing it in Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. Nothing that he could boast about. You have all these solas sort of coming in on one another. As Paul says in Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Regardless of what the church says, regardless of what tradition says, that's sola scriptura. You know, Luther and the early reformers did not see themselves as innovators introducing a new theology. They viewed themselves as calling people back to what the scriptures taught. So in, in the context of that, you have these new indulgences being sold to build St. Peter's Basilica And there he goes and he nails these theses on the door. It was basically the equivalent of publishing a journal or posting an article on a news website. But it had a much bigger effect than anybody would ever realize. Basically, it was two things that that, that Luther was confronting. First, if the Pope truly had control over purgatory and he can reduce the length of time there through indulgences, then why doesn't he do what? Why doesn't he just use his authority and wipe it all clean? Great question. And more importantly, Luther held that remorse for sins is not a bad thing. It's actually our guilt and our remorse for sin that leads us to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And guess where he got that idea? In God's word. Sola Scriptura. Well, this increased trouble for Luther in 1518. That's the following year. Luther was summoned to appear before a diet. D-I-E-T. Now, I've been summoned to appear before diets before, and I try to resist. This is different. This diet is a general assembly. Okay, hopefully you remember it that way. So he's been called, he's been summoned to come before a general assembly to answer charges of heresy. You know what his heresy was? The charge of heresy sort of centered around his refusal to recant and declare that the Pope and church councils could err. Charles V tried to enter in. On April 17, 1521, he was summoned to the Diet of Worms. His conviction of sola scriptura became evident. Luther replied, listen to his reply, as he's standing before a general assembly being charged as a heretic, he said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. 
I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Now, Luther actually went and made three different piles of his writings, and some of those he realized that he had become sort of mean and ugly in his spirit. Those he actually did move aside. But this quote comes from those which he has exegeted Scripture and understood God's teaching to be different than the magisterium. As one scholar said, with these words, Protestantism was born. And it was born on the foundation of the Bible as the supreme and final authority. So why does the Reformation matter today? I think as we, as we look at these elements before us that represent the broken body of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, it matters today because we cannot just assume that people have heard the true gospel. And the true gospel is justification. That word means to be legally declared righteous. In God's, in God's courtroom, you stand guilty. And He, for some reason, okay, a reason we'll get to, declares you to be as righteous as Jesus Christ. Not because you've, you've been purged in sort of this middle place in between, not because you went on a crusade or because you did anything else, but He legally declares you to be as righteous as Jesus Christ. Luther argued, if it is shown that our best works are actually sinful, as Isaiah says, as trying to merit salvation, that, that your righteousness is as filthy, disgusting rags. Luther said, if our best works are actually sinful, then we cannot trust in them to be the means by which we are saved. What this means then is that the gospel is applied to us by faith, not by works. As Ephesians 2, 8-10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Can we just stop there for a second? Folks, it's not because you had greater faith than other people, or better faith, or higher religious instinct. It's not your own doing. Sola Scriptura. That's what God's Word says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, but by grace. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. If you find yourself boasting that you were clever enough or wise enough or religious enough to meander a path to God, you've missed it. So there is still a need for reformation. The early reformers had a saying, reformed, always reforming. And we never want to assume the gospel. The gospel is not of your own works or of your own doings so that no one may boast. Romans 3, 20, and then 27 to 28. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so the Apostle Paul says, but if it is by grace, 
It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be what? That's what Paul says. That grace would no longer be grace. If you add the smallest, slightest work to your salvation, it's no longer grace. Therefore, you are not saved. Now, you are saved for his workmanship to do good works, but you are never saved by good works. So, why does the Reformation matter today? Because justification, salvation, is by grace through faith alone. Secondly, in our our age of religious pluralism, theological softness, and biblical literacy, the Reformation reminds us that apart from solid theological belief and accurate biblical exposition, there is no biblical unity. We don't rub up against people who deny these truths, who set Scripture aside or bring Scripture to this uncomfortable equality with church office or tradition. We reject that. Reformed, always reforming. Third, in every generation, every person needs to hear the good news of salvation in Christ from sin and eternal death. You understand that not everybody will be saved. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But not everyone will be saved. But I want, I want us to be very careful that we never make the path or the way to be forgiven either broader or narrower than God's word. For instance, listen to Romans 10, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe that? Faith alone. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. That's all people. So Arabs who, had, who, who were born and raised Muslim their whole life and they don't have believing parents or grandparents and they've never set foot in a church like this and they have never spoken a word of English. If they believe they are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, the same way you are saved. It's not like there's this American path and there's an all other people's path. It is by Jesus Christ alone. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved, everyone. Not everyone is saved, but everyone who calls, who depends, who trusts, who believes. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? See, it's a very clear specific, verbalized truth. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. My final point, Christian. Do you believe the words in the Bible are God's words? And that to disbelieve or to disobey them is to disbelieve or to disobey God himself? Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Do you obey it? 
Is it the final standard? Is it the supreme authority for faith and practice in your life? There is a plague running through even evangelicalism in America, and it is Bibleless, scriptureless Christians. If we truly believe sola scriptura, then we will not treat it like a fortune cookie on a, on a, on a periodic meal. But we will actually be letting the words of Christ dwell in us richly. Some of you are. Some of you have shared that with me. But do we believe what Jesus prayed in John seventeen seventeen? Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus' words to the Father. Your word is truth. Let's pray.